Well, most Bible scholars who have their eye on the times are in agreement. The day is coming here in this country when it will certainly cost something to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's coming. In fact, wholehearted devotion to Jesus may cost all of us dearly at some point. This is already the case, as you may know, in other parts of the world. Millions of people are suffering, and many are even dying every day for their faith in Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that uh, we here in the United States are going to be exempt from persecution forever. It's coming. And in that day, when standing up for Christ will bring hardship into people's lives, it's going to be revealed who the genuine believers are, the genuine Christians, those who truly follow Christ, the ones who are willing to endure suffering for his sake, and it's going to be revealed who the imposters are, who, who the phonies are, who will shrink back from the prospect of suffering and think it an unnecessary inconvenience. Well, persecution is a hard thing, to be sure, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, certainly not for our cause. Many would contend that historically, the church of Jesus Christ thrives most in a hostile culture, a hostile culture. You may have heard the statement, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's true. You might know this, but uh, way back in the 300s AD, the Roman Empire had a, an emperor named Constantine, and he basically elevated Christianity in 313 AD to be, you know, kind of the, have the most favored status religion uh, in the Roman Empire. And historians are pretty much agreed that that ruined the church. It ruined Christianity. It neutered it. It, uh, it took the punch out of Christianity. You see, persecution has always been good for the church of Jesus Christ. Not comfortable, but good. Purifying the church, separating out the phonies, and inspiring courage among the faithful, bringing out the best in the body of Christ. A few centuries before Constantine, the Roman Empire was actively persecuting believers. And by the 60s AD, Christianity which had arisen within Judaism, was pretty much viewed as separate from Judaism and recognized as a distinct religious group. And of course, Christians insisted that Jesus was alive and that Jesus was a king and that he was coming back to set up his kingdom. And that started to get under the skin of the authorities. That started to rankle them a bit. And the government became hostile to the Christian faith. It was about that time that the Apostle Paul was executed. The Roman Emperor Nero started the very grisly practice of using Christians as human torches. You heard about this? He would arrest Christians and capture them and tie them up, and he stationed them in his courtyard, and he would cover them in tar and light them on fire to light up his courtyard and to entertain him. That gives new meaning to the phrase, fiery trials, wouldn't you say? It costs something to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is the backdrop for a letter written by Peter 
to believers living in hostile regions of the Roman Empire at that time. This letter came to be included in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture, and we know it as 1 Peter. And Peter wrote his letter to encourage believers, his brothers and sisters who were going through very difficult times of persecution. He wanted to strengthen their faith and to help them to know how Christ would want them to respond to what was going on in their lives and to remind them especially of their calling, to remind them of their calling. And so for the next nine weeks, we're going to be digging deeply into this book of First Peter together. We're going to go through it verse by verse. And we've titled this series with a Greek word. It's the word kaleo. Would you say that with me? Kaleo. It's a Greek word. It's found several times in the book of First Peter. It means called, to be called. And we're going to, to discover in our study all that God has called us to as followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you're going through hard times and life is tough and things are difficult for you and maybe it's starting to cost you something to stay devoted to Christ, you need to know your calling. That's what's going to keep you anchored to the solid rock in the storms of life. And we're going to see some amazing things in this book of First Peter. You're going to see some things that will stretch you there's some meat, some meatier truths in the, in the book of 1 Peter. There's some sweet truths, some honey as well in this book. You're going to find some things that will just amaze you, things you've never heard before from God's Word. I'm sure of it. We're going to enjoy this deeply. And I, I pray that you'll be challenged to think differently about your life and hopefully be encouraged to stay faithful to Christ no matter what happens. No matter what happens. Many of our small groups are going to track along with this study. So now is a great time. If you're not connected in a small group yet, great time to jump in right at the front end of this series and uh, explore the truths of First Peter along with some brothers and sisters in one of our small groups. And I hope that you will. So you ready for this? Need your Bible in hand, a pen? Pull that study guide out of your worship folder. Here we go. Today we're going to tackle the first 12 verses of the book of First Peter. And what we're going to find is that the very first thing that Peter does in writing to these believers is to remind them of the glorious salvation that they have in Jesus Christ. In effect, right out of the chute, Peter is going to say, look, with all of my apostolic authority, I'm urging you in your time of trouble not to lose sight of the magnificent, glorious salvation that God has called you to. So let's look at how he opens his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. He starts this way with his greeting. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now stop there. This is Peter, Simon Peter, the famous Galilean fisherman who was also famous for sticking his foot in his mouth on many different occasions. <laughs> oh, what a transformed man Peter had become. From those days of warming his hands at the wrong fire, remember that? Denying Christ, vehemently cursing from those days to the days of becoming that fiery Pentecost preacher, calling the crowds to repent. And now at this stage of his life, an elder statesman of the church, mature, 
training young pastors and shepherding the flock of God. That Peter is the writer. An apostle of Jesus Christ, he says. And in that day, that word carried authority with it. If you were an apostle, then it's like the old E.F. Hutton commercial. When you talk, people listen. There's only a handful of apostles. And so he writes his greeting now to his audience. Now, when you and I write letters or emails, we usually say things like, Dear Joe or Dear Mary, right? But not Peter. He's going he's gonna to teach some theology, and even in his greeting, he's going to remind his readers of who they are in Jesus Christ. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, literally his chosen ones, his hand-picked ones, reminding believers that they have been chosen by God. Strangers in the world, he says. I love that phrase. You ever feel like a stranger in this world? A misfit? An oddball? <laughs> Look at the person you came with and just tell them, you, you, I always thought you were an oddball. Just tell them that. <laughs> Strangers in the world, he says. In other places, he calls us aliens <laughs> from another place. Pilgrims is the idea, a pilgrim mentality. You ever feel like that? You ever have these thoughts like, I just don't really fit in here, like I was made for another world. The words of the old gospel quartet song come to mind. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Now, when you sing that, you've got to sing it with a nasal twang, because it's, I think, Tennessee-type song. This world is not my home. We are strangers, Peter is reminding his persecuted brothers and sisters. We're strangers in this world, temporary residents, pilgrims, fleeing the city of destruction to the city of light. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You say, where are those places? Well, that's modern-day Turkey, the southern part. And Christianity had spread up into that area. But now the believers there were being persecuted. Who have been chosen, he says. Again, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Meaning that God makes his choices. He makes his selections based on the fact that he knows everything about everyone. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad? You know... Sometimes this is a controversial teaching that believers have been chosen by God. But back before it brought angst to people, people used to be grateful for this and say, thank God for his choosing. Thank God for his selection of us based on his foreknowledge. It also put the fear of God in people to think about that. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What that means, the word sanctify means to set apart and make holy. And what it's talking about is, is the fact that after God chose us, when you finally came on the scene here on planet Earth, the Holy Spirit began to draw you to Jesus Christ. He began to draw you to Jesus as a chosen one. And, and the Spirit of God uses all kinds of means to draw people to Jesus. Maybe a youth pastor. Maybe parents who knew Christ. Maybe grandparents who prayed for you. Maybe a church camp experience when you were young. Maybe a pastor or a church or a tragedy, as was in the case in my life. 
Maybe a college friend, like a, a lady I was talking with this week. Maybe God used that person to draw you to Jesus Christ and to, to wake you up to your need for a Savior. And then the Spirit continued to draw you and draw you to the point where you were introduced at some point in, the li- in your life to the truth. The truth of the Word of God and the Gospel and the truth about you. That you were a sinner separated from God, a holy God. And the Spirit of God worked in you. And you came to that point where you realized, God, I, I fall short of your standards and I feel separated from you. And the Spirit says, you need to repent. And turn in faith to Jesus Christ and put your total trust in him. I remember when that happened for me. Do you remember when it happened for you? That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. For the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ, it says. You know what? You weren't just saved to be rescued from eternity in hell, as as blessed as that is. You were saved to be freed from the dominion of sin in your life so that you you could obey Jesus. And one reason I know in my heart that I'm saved is I have a deep desire to obey Christ. Do you? I don't always do it perfectly. I don't. But there's a a deep desire to please Jesus, to live for his smile. God put that in me. And God put that in many of you. For obedience to Christ, and then this wonderful phrase, sprinkling by his blood. Say, what does that mean? That refers to the cleansing, to the washing away of our sins. Like the song says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, when each of us stands before God, no other plea will suffice. No other defense will do. Only this. Jesus Because your Holy Spirit worked in my life, I remember the day when I turned from my life of sin and I turned to you in faith and you through your blood washed my sins away. You made me clean. You cleansed me. You sprinkled me with your blood. My wife was commenting the other day, we were driving through the snow like all of us are doing these days. And she said, you know, I just love the snow because it reminds me of how God purifies us and makes us as white as the driven snow through the washing of his blood. You know, if you're a truly saved person here today, these things, you've been chosen by God, sanctified through his spirit, cleansed, these are true of you. Bank on it. Believe it. Rest in it. Live out of these truths. And Peter's just getting started talking about salvation. He wants to drive home his point that salvation is of God. It is God's idea. God planned it. God executed it. God carries it out. And God deserves all the praise for it. Read aloud with me beginning in verse 3, would you? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is one of the great salvation statements in all of the Bible. It tells us that salvation is all of God. 
He deserves all the credit, all the praise for salvation. It tells us that the source of salvation is who? God. Praise be to the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us that his motivation for planning salvation was what? In his great mercy. Aren't you glad that our God is a God of mercy? Oh, he's a merciful God. Say, what's mercy? Well, mercy and grace are kind of two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God withholding from us that which we rightfully deserve. And grace is God giving us that which we don't deserve. Like heaven and forgiveness and all the wonderful things we're going to be talking about this morning. That's grace. Mercy is God saying, I'm not going to give them the judgment and condemnation that they deserve because of their sin. God is a God of mercy. And it was his mercy that flows from his heart that prompted him to make a way of salvation for us. It was John Newton, the self-described wicked slave trader turned Christ follower, who was asked about this one day and he said, look, I just know two things. I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. And he wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. He saved a wretch like me. Friends, if if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, your heart should be full of praise for God, who in his mercy reached down from heaven and saved you. He saved you. He paints this beautiful picture of salvation. It says, in his great mercy, he has given us what? New birth. A second birth. That's the picture of salvation that Peter presents here. The the original phrasing literally reads, He caused us to be born again. Man, that's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot these days, isn't it? Born again? It's kind of become a negative, has a negative connotation in our culture, but not in the Bible. Oh, no. In the Bible, being born again is a very positive thing. One night, a religious man named Nicodemus snuck over to Jesus' place to have a religious discussion. Nick at night, I guess you could call that. (laughs) And in that discussion, Jesus looked at him and very pointedly said, Look, Nicodemus, you should know this. You're a religious teacher in Israel. If you ever want to see the kingdom of God, if you ever want to have a chance at the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. It's not optional. It's a condition. It's a requirement. It's an entrance requirement for the kingdom of heaven. You must have a second birth, he said. And he went on to say, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit of spirit, you must be born of water and of the spirit. Born of water. You ever been in the delivery room when the baby's born? That's called born of water. That's physical birth. Jesus said, you need that, but you also need a second spiritual birth. Now, sometimes people hear that and they say, why? Why? What's wrong with our first birth? Wasn't that enough to get us in? No. In fact, the truth is that through our first birth, through our physical birth, we inherited something from our parents that actually disqualifies us for heaven. Through our physical birth, we inherited something that makes us unfit to live with a holy God. Call it the flesh. Call it sinfulness. We all got it. And the only remedy... Jesus said, is a second birth, 
a recreation of our souls that infuses spiritual life into us and makes us new creations. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creations. And every time a person, a man, a woman, a child, drawn by the Spirit, repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, in that instant they are born again. So in a sense, if you're here today and you're a saved person, you have two birthdays, a a physical birthday and a spiritual birthday. My Bible teacher in college used to say it this way, if you've been born only once, you'll die twice. But if you've been born twice, you'll only die once, and maybe not at all. You need a second birth. And Peter says, praise God that in his mercy he gave us, it's a gift, he gave us this new birth. And being born again brings some incredible benefits, tons of them. Peter mentions four. He has given us new birth into a, what does it say? Living hope, that's the first one, a living hope. You say, what's that? A living hope is the confident expectation that one day after we die we'll be raised from the dead. Did you know that this life is not all there is? I am hoping, we are trying to get Don Piper here to our church to speak to us. He wrote a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Anybody read it? Powerful book. Don Piper affirms through his experience what the Bible has said for centuries. Death is just a doorway into eternity. There is existence beyond the grave. And Peter's saying, when you know Jesus Christ, when you've been born again, he gives you this living hope, this hope of life beyond the grave. Jesus promised his followers in John 5, 21, that one day he would raise all of, all of them from the dead. And we will be raised, get this, with a new body. A, a, a body similar in some ways to Jesus' resurrection body after he came out of the grave. And some of us are very grateful for that promise. This week, we have a group of pastors who play basketball right here in this room once a week on Wednesdays. And uh, man, this week, it was just bad. There were things popping and cracking, and people were laying on the floor moaning and groaning, and uh, injuries and all this. And finally, one of the guys said, you know, we need a a 50 and over league to play in. (laughs) New bodies, one day, a living hope. We're looking forward to that. Second, a lasting inheritance. Would you say that? A lasting inheritance. He said, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. You say, I got an inheritance coming? Yeah, if you're saved, if you're born again. It's in heaven. It's a promised future possession given to all heirs. Every daughter of the Father, every son of the Father is a joint heir with Christ, it says, and we have an inheritance waiting for us. It says it here, it says it in Romans 8 and Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. You say, what is it? Is it a billion dollars? (laughs) Well, we're not totally sure all that our inheritance encompasses. It does tell us here that it's the kind of inheritance that won't decay or rot or get contaminated or spoil or fade or get pilfered away by greedy siblings, as sometimes happens with inheritances here. For sure, we can know that it's very valuable. Certainly, it includes the new body that I mentioned. That's part of your inheritance is this new spiritual body. 
Certainly it includes a prepared place in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Certainly it includes receiving glory and praise from God. It includes an entrustment of responsibility in his kingdom. And ultimately, your inheritance and mine is God himself. How many times does he say in the word, I am your portion. I am your inheritance. I am your delight. You will inherit the creator. He will give himself to us without reserve. Not holding anything back. You can't even fathom what that's going to be like. It says this inheritance is kept, literally reserved in heaven for you. It's got your name on it up there. Waiting for you to claim. Now, you don't have to hasten the process, okay? He'll get you there in time. But it's reserved. A living hope, a lasting inheritance. You say, is that it? No, it gets better. Shielded by God's power, it says. The third benefit is what I like to call a secure standing with God. You who by faith are shielded by God's power. This is a military term, shielded. means to be kept under guard, to be safeguarded from attack. It tells us of God's wonderful promise that he will continually guard those who are truly born again so that no enemy will be able to prevent them from making it to heaven and obtaining their full inheritance and enjoying it forever. It doesn't say that God will guard you and keep you from and prevent you from experiencing trials in this life. Never promised. But it says if you're truly born again, he will get you to heaven You know, around here, we believe and teach in the security of the believer. We believe and teach that the person who is genuinely saved is as sure for heaven as if they'd already been there a thousand years. We believe and teach what Romans 8 says, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We believe what John 10 says, that no one is able to pluck you out of God's hand. No one. If you're genuinely born again, you are sure for heaven. I think Peter's saying this to these persecuted believers because life was hard. He's saying, look, remember, remember what God has done in giving you this secure standing with him. And then he says there's a final deliverance coming until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, this is why we don't feel completely free from sin yet. There is an aspect of salvation that is yet future. Did you know that? I like to think of salvation in three acts or three phases. Think of it this way. In the past, I was saved or delivered from the penalty of sin. Will you say that with me? I was saved from the penalty of sin. That's a past event. In the present... I am being saved from the power of sin. I am being delivered from sin's power. In the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Past, present, and future aspects of salvation. And Peter's saying, look, fix your eyes on this. One day, a day of final deliverance, ultimate salvation is coming. No more sin, no more sorrow, No more tears, no more battering and abuse, no more anger and mistrust and betrayal, no more hurt and bitterness, 
No more senseless killing and violence. Done with. Done with. Wounds healed. Relationships restored. Love will reign. And we who know Christ will finally and ultimately be completely saved. Delivered from the very presence of sin. From the presence of sin. It's great to be saved, isn't it? (laughs) It is great to be saved. I mean, what could be better than that? And Peter's point is, it's all because of God. Sometimes we like to think, you know, I was pretty smart to choose Jesus. You know what the truth is? Before you ever chose Jesus, Jesus chose you. He set his love on you millennia ago and said, I want her, I want him, I want her, I want him. They're mine. And through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he drew you to Christ and gave you all of these wonderful benefits as gifts, package deal that comes with salvation and being born again. Praise God. It's salvation by God. And it's a glorious privilege to get in on. Peter reminds his readers of these things because he knows they're going through tough times. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Everything he's just talked about. Though, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. Your faith of greater worth than gold. Which perishes, gold does when it's refined by fire. Your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. I love verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Anybody seen Jesus Christ in the flesh? No. But do you love him? Do you love him? And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's saying, look, my brothers, my sisters who are struggling under the oppression of persecution, stay strong for God, even in the hard times. And he gives them some encouragements. First, he says, look, trials here and now are temporary. They're not going to last forever. He says, for a little while. They're seasonal. (laughs) But the benefits of salvation are forever. So focus on those. That will get you through. Later on, and when we study 1 Peter, we're going to learn about some of the things these believers were going through. Chapter 2, verse 18, tells us that they were being mistreated at work. Chapter 4 tells us they were being falsely accused of wrongdoing. They were being set up. Chapter 4, verse 14, tells us they were being ridiculed and made fun of for being Christians. Some, because they got saved, were, were finding tension in their marriages now because they had spouses who didn't believe, who were not born again. 2.12 tells us they were being slandered, and 4.12 tells us they were being persecuted by the government, and Peter's saying all this is true, but none of it will last forever. Get a bigger perspective. And then he says, you know what? There's a reason why God allows painful trials. To refine your faith, like gold being refined in a fire, to prove the genuineness of your faith. 
I think this phrase is interesting, that our, fra- our faith is so valuable to God, more valuable than gold. Think about this for a minute. When you are going through very difficult, tough times, but in those times you, you cling to Jesus Christ and you hold fast to him and you stay faithful to Christ, you know what that does? That sends a message to people and to angels and demons and Satan that God is worth serving no matter what. Wasn't that the message of Job? Wasn't that the message of Job? God let Satan strip everything away, and Job stood there and he said, God, you can slay me. You can kill me, but I will never turn my back on you. You are my God. And all Satan could do was go, what else can I do? God, you're worth that? You're worth that kind of devotion, even when you're not supplying any creature comforts? God says, yeah. God is forging within you and me this kind of faith through our difficult times that proves how precious our Savior is. And then he says this, faith that is proven genuine by remaining steadfast during our trials will be acknowledged and rewarded by Jesus Christ at his second coming. Oh, what a day. Oh, what a day. You know, when we see these phrases about praise, honor, and glory to Jesus, we tend to think that's going to be us saying that to him, and certainly it is. But in this context, you know what it is? It's Jesus Christ giving you praise. On that day when you lock eyes with the second person of the Trinity, don't you want him to look at you and say, well done. Well done. You okay? Somebody help that precious person back there. Jesus wants to give you praise and honor and glory. And of course, we'll turn right around in that moment and say, it's all you, Jesus. You're worthy of everything. Genuine faith keeps loving Jesus despite never having seen him and produces joy in us even during trials because we know how trials purify our faith and deliver us from the power of sin, which is the goal of our faith. Finally, Peter wants his readers to understand just how privileged they are to know Christ and to be chosen for salvation. Verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, those prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's a mouthful, isn't it? I love this last phrase, even angels long to look into these things. What's he saying? Well, you're probably aware that centuries before the actual coming of Jesus Christ to our planet, it was all predicted by prophets who were given prophecies hundreds of years prior. You knew that, I believe. You know, you can find allusions to Jesus Christ in every book of the Old Testament. Jesus in the Old Testament. 
I'm going to post on our website this week some studies that show these prophecies and these mentions of Jesus in the Old Testament, if you want to study this further. But here's the deal. The Holy Spirit revealed certain things about the coming Messiah to prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Micah and Zephaniah. And it tells us that they would write these prophecies down and then they would, they would scrutinize them and look for clues to try to find out when this was all going to happen. That tells me that they didn't even understand fully their own prophecies that had been given to them. They certainly did not understand what we know now, from our vantage point looking back, that the sufferings of Messiah and his glories would be separated by at least 2,000 years. They, they kind of saw them together. But we have the vantage point of living here in the 21st century. But they did understand they were serving a future generation with their prophecies. And Peter is basically writing to his readers and he's saying, you're it. You are the generation that the culmination of all the prophecies, you're it. You're the first generation that can say, Jesus came in our lifetime. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. We're a blessed generation. The mystery of salvation hidden for so long to so many was now being fully revealed. Interestingly, it says that even angels long to look into these things. You say, what does that mean? The word means angels peer intently with curiosity trying to figure it out. This doctrine of salvation. Why? Because no such thing was ever provided for them. The angels who joined Satan's rebellion millennia ago, their fate is sealed. They're doomed. You don't read in the Bible of angels bowing the knee to Jesus and getting saved. No provision of salvation was ever made for angels, for those fallen angels that we call demons. Their choice sealed their eternal fate. And so they look into salvation and they go, Whoa, mercy, grace. God must really love human beings. They're curious. Read Jude 6. No salvation for them. You know, to me, this is just one more reason to say, wow, we are so blessed. We get all bogged down and mired down in our little problems and difficulties, right? And they're real. They happen to us. But God's saying, look, step back and see the big picture of salvation. You're blessed. The angels don't even understand this. They're on the outside looking in. So I guess I can endure any temporary setbacks and difficulties and hardships in this life. Because I know that God has planned and provided such a marvelous, wonderful salvation And I got chosen to be in on it. And so did many of you. Wow. And with that wow, thus endeth the first section of 1 Peter. There's a lot in there, wouldn't you agree? Way more than I got a chance to fully expound on. Let me close with a few brief thoughts for us. And then a challenge, okay? For us, to the Christ-following believers of New Life Church Gehanna. 11 o'clock crowd. When life gets hard, 
Anybody there? When life gets hard, recognize that, that realize that salvation is coming. There's more to life than this life. And one day you will be totally set free from sin and death. It's coming. When life seems unfair, anybody there? It's not fair. Recognize that salvation is happening right now. Your faith is being tested and purified and refined. And in that process, you are being delivered from sin's power in your life. Praise God. And third, when life beats you down. (laughs) Anybody there? When life beats you down, remember that salvation came. And all the generations prior to Christ, and all the angels would have loved to experience salvation through Christ like you have, but they didn't. You are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. We are blessed. And now the challenge. Twelve verses mining the depths of salvation. Are you saved? I mean, like everyone. (laughs) Are you sure? Are you saved? Have you experienced salvation? Have you experienced that pull, that drawing from the Holy Spirit pulling you to Christ? Have you experienced the conviction of your sin? That your sin separates you from God and apart from Jesus Christ? You're like the angels, you're doomed. But God has provided this glorious salvation and that if if you'll respond to the Spirit and turn from your sin and repent and place your total faith in Jesus as your Savior, He'll take His blood and wash your sins away. And when you stand before God on Judgment Day, you will have an adequate defense on that day of judgment because of Jesus and no one else. Are you saved? Have you experienced salvation? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? In a moment, I'm going to give those of you who came in today with burdens and weighted down with things who need to be, just want to be prayed for by some brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you that opportunity so you can prepare for that. But right now, I want to ask this question to every person in this room right now. Are you saved? There is no more important choice in your life. It affects your eternal destiny, your standing with God. I'm wondering if there's anybody in this room right now, as we've talked about salvation, you're feeling the pull of the Spirit of God on you. And basically, he's saying to you, you're not saved yet, but you can be. Jesus wants you. How many of you would lift your hands right now? Lift them high so I can see them. Say, Pastor Steve, I need to be saved. I'm not 100% sure that I've been born again like you talked about, that I've experienced that second birth, but I want to be. I want to be sure about that. Would you raise your hands right now? Thank you. On my left over here, I see two hands. Anybody else on my left? I'm not saved, but I need to be. God's calling me. How about on my right? Yes, thank you. Anybody else on my right? So very important. Yes, I see that hand way in the back. Anybody else? Put your hand high up so I can see it. Yes. Thank you. 
You can put your hands down. Please, if you sense at all the Spirit of God drawing you to Jesus, you can speak to him now. He's listening. He's alive. I invite you to say something like this, just whispered there from your seat. Dear Jesus, just say it. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Tell him that. (laughs) I've fallen short of your mark. And I'm ready to turn from my sin. I believe you're alive. I believe you died on the cross for me. Right now. I repent of my sins. I confess you as my Lord. Forgive my sins. Jesus, be my Savior and Lord. And then thank him. Just say, thank you, Jesus. Did you pray that? Those of you who raised your hands. If you did, you meant it. Would you just lift your hands back up high so I can see it? Yeah, awesome. Super. Anybody else? Yes, back on my left. Anybody else? I prayed that prayer. Yes. Praise God. Thank you. Two, three in the back. Awesome. Anybody over here on my right? Yes. Put your hands down. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. Before you leave today, just go say, Hey, I I made sure today that I'm one of Jesus' saved ones. Some of you need prayer today. You came in, you're, you're wearing a heavy burden. You're facing something in your life. I don't know exactly what it is, but you'd love to receive prayer today from some brothers and sisters around you and just feel their touch and hear their prayers for you. Would you stand up right now? all around the room I just need prayer I've got stuff going on in my life I just need to know that I've got support from my brothers and sisters in Christ thank you others need prayer stand up where you're at anybody else stand on up stand on up now those who are around these folks who are standing would you just kind of migrate towards them just at least three or four. You can move around just like we did last week. Touch them, put your hand on their shoulder, their arm. Ask them, what's, what's weighing on you? What's your heavy burden? Right back here to my right, some folks just gather around there. At least four or five right over here. Every person needs at least four or five. You can move around. If you're standing, with, just take a moment and share what your burden is with your brothers and sisters. And... Uh, let them pray for you. We're going to worship together as they do.